2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men. Amen. This morning we are continuing our sermon series through 2 Timothy. Um, we're in chapter 3, as Jamie read on page 1182, if you're using a pew Bible. Um, 2 Timothy is a letter written by Paul uh, when he was older, um, at the end of his life, in prison. So it's written from an older man to Timothy a younger man, um, someone in the young generation. And in this passage today, Paul does what, what a lot of older men do when they talk to younger people. He starts talking about the, you know, the difficult days of the generation and how the world is changing and how tough things are getting. Um, Paul sees society slipping. I imagine a lot of grandparents, in, even in this room, uh, may have similar words of warning if you were writing a letter to your grandchildren. Uh, here's an example of a letter from a concerned couple uh, about how times have changed for the worse in their, as they get older and they're seeing the younger generation. What is the world coming to? When we reflect on the state of the world today, it makes us so sad to see the direction society is heading. It seems as though with each passing generation, the world falls further into chaos and despair. In our day, men and women walked with God, and everyone worshipped him, and life was peaceful because of it. It's scary to see how far people have moved away from the Lord. It's like they don't even know how to worship God. It shows up in the way they're living. There's so much petty jealousy and pride and mean-spiritedness. There's hate that leads to violence. People are killing one another for no reason. The world is turning brother against brother, especially in the city. Modern cities are so corrupt and full of sin. It's just nothing like the peaceful life we had living on the farm. Those were the days. I know we made some mistakes in our day. I remember one time my father got so mad at me for sneaking into the neighbor's field to sample his fruit. I got a tongue lashing over that one. But that was about the worst trouble we got into. Not anything like what these kids do today. And don't even get me started on how they dress. The things they wear, good grief. In our day, you would have never seen me in clothes like they wear today. I'm starting to wonder if maybe we're living in the last days. How could it get any worse? Surely God won't let things go on much longer. The end of the world must be near. Signed, Adam and Eve.
Every generation thinks they live in the worst generation. It couldn't get any worse. Uh, truthfully, things were much better when Adam and Eve were first put on the earth. And that's the, the last couple who can really reminisce about the good old days. Uh, there's been sin in the world ever since. Every generation has seen uh, their share of difficult times. And you may feel like you're living in the last days and things could not get any worse. Um, and maybe Paul thought the same thing. Because 2 Timothy 3 paints a very dark picture of difficult days. Um, and if you think it sounds like our current society, you would not be entirely wrong. Um, our culture displays all of the sins and vices that Paul mentions in this passage. But Paul thought all of this was taking place 2,000 years ago when he wrote Timothy. He uses in this passage, and we'll see, present tense verbs to tell Timothy this stuff is happening in the church of Ephesus as he's writing. Um, the, the term last days that Paul uses here when he says, understand this, that in the last days there will come difficult times. The term last days in scripture does not strictly refer to just the end times. The term last days means the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So we're living in the last days, but Paul was living in the last days too, the days he's awaiting the return of Jesus. And we're told throughout Scripture that in these last days there will be trouble and there will be difficult times. In Matthew uh, 24, uh, Jesus predicted that lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. He said that would happen in the last days. So the presence of lawlessness and coldness in our society should not surprise us. It doesn't probably surprise us. But what should surprise us is to find characteristics like that in the church. And when Paul wrote 2 Timothy 3 to Timothy, he's telling him these things are going on in the church he describes people with a form of godliness, people who are presenting themselves as believers. So as we study this this morning, what I want to do is I want us to think about what happened to these people. How did people that profess to be godly become so terribly corrupt, so bad that Paul told Timothy, avoid such people, have nothing to do with them? What is the heart of their problem? And if we look at the depths of their sin, it may, in fact, shed some light on the sin in our own life and help us avoid a similar fate. So what is the heart of the problem? Well, look with me in verse uh, 3, chapter 3, uh, again, starting in verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why? For, Paul says, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and if you skip down to verse, uh, um, skip down to verse four, you'll see he says, "Lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God." There are nineteen vices, nineteen sins listed in this passage, but all of them are bookended by those two pairs at the beginning and the end. That people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, instead of lovers of God. So clearly, these people have a love problem. They are love sick. Our world is encountering very difficult times. 
We have wars abroad. We have crime at home. Things may get worse before they get better, if ever they even do get better. But Scripture, this passage particularly, reminds us that the reason for the difficult times in the world is not because of who or is not who is is or is not our president. The difficult times is not because of who's holding Congress, which party is in power. The difficult times is not because of our economy, nor is that the solution to the difficult times. Difficult times arise because of love problems. The greatest trouble mankind faces is not out there. It's in here. It's in their own heart. 25 years ago, a man named Henry Brandt wrote a book. He was a, he's kind of a counseling book. He wrote a book called The Heart of the Problem, How to Stop Coping and Find the Cure for Your Struggle. And in that book, he diagnosed the human struggle with this sentence. He said, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of our problem is the problem of our hearts loving ourselves instead of loving God. Timothy, that Paul is writing to, had his loves in the right order. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes to the church of Philippi an interesting uh, verse about Timothy, and he says in that he's going to send them Timothy, and he says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for everyone else seeks their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. That's convicting to my, me personally because I, I'm an interest seeker. I'm a self-interest seeker. I seek my own interest, I'll confess, every single day, many times a day. Um, Sarah might say all day. I don't know. <laughs> um, I seek my own interest because my love of myself burns a lot hotter than my love of God. Thank the Lord for convicting passages like this to, to kind of help wake us up from that. If we're honest, we can probably all confess to having some misplaced love in our life, some things that we love that we shouldn't. If you're here, if you're in this room and you never struggle with the love of self or the love of money or the love of pleasure, then this would be a good time for a bathroom break because most of the sermon is not going to apply to you. You can probably just go ahead and head out to lunch. The rest of us need a warning about the danger of misplaced love. Paul singles out the loves of money and pleasure because those are the two most common passions and loves that Satan uses to tempt people, especially to bring down the church. Um, think of the kingdoms of David and Solomon, both of those were undermined by the love of pleasure, right? If you think uh, Jesus was betrayed by Judas because of the love of money. In his earlier letter to Timothy, Paul wrote, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So we can see commonly like pleasure and money um, are the universal types of self-love that afflict people the most often. But in this passage, in between those two things, in between the love of money and the love of pleasure, Paul lists 15 other terrible traits. 
I'm going to read them again uh, just to emphasize to us how awful he sees things becoming. Proud, arrogant, abusive, people who are disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. It's a very dark description of the time he's living in and the people that he's ministering to. Maybe a dark description of the time we're living in and the people that we're ministering to as well. Does not mean here that every sinner will fall victim to every one of these sins, um, but certainly any one of us is capable of any one of these vices. But the point is that any time our heart drifts from the love of God, as one commentator said, this whole paragraph can slide through our soul. And the longer and the harder that we worship ourselves, instead of worshiping God, the more these sins will spread. If you're a Christian here today, beware. We're not immune to this. We're not immune to these sins. I liked how one commentator put it. He said, for a Christian, often Christ is not explicitly denied, just effectively displaced, kind of pushed aside to make a little more room for our own agenda. Has Christ been displaced in your life? Are you trying to, to scoot God off his throne a little bit to make a little more room for yourself? Think about going out sailing in a boat with a small hole in it. It's going to float for a while, but the more and more air that gets displaced by water, the more that boat's going to start sinking. And it's going to reach a point where it's going to be too late to start bailing. You're just going to need to be rescued. The ship's going down. That's what Paul's trying to warn us of in our passage this morning. When we look at these specific vices, again, we see near the top of the list pride and arrogance. But notice how pride and arrogance lead next to abuse. What grows in the heart comes out in the mouth or the fist. He, he talks about disobedience to parents and children and students. That may seem insignificant to you, disobedience to parents, but that action of disobedience comes from a heart that Scripture calls right here ungrateful and unholy the traits that are next in the list. Just a simple thing like disobeying, disobeying parents is a sign of a deeper sin inside the heart. It's a sign of self-love. So Paul's organizing these vices in this way to teach us important understanding that our outward behavior is always a sign of the heart. That's why God ordered the Ten Commandments in the way that he did. You read the Ten Commandments, before you get to thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not kill, you start with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, if we believe that commandment and we trust it and we obey it, then we worship God first in our lives. But on the other hand, when we think that we can run our own lives perfectly fine by ourselves, thank you very much then we become 
our own idol. We worship ourselves instead of God. And when we start worshiping ourselves, we expect other people to worship us too. We want, to honor, we want people to honor what we honor. We want people to love what we love. If we love ourselves, then we want people to love us, and that's what we're going to start focusing on. And when other people don't love us the way we want to be loved, we can become tyrannical. As Paul says in this passage, in the next word, we can become heartless. The word for heartless there really means somebody who's lacking in natural affection. That's how the King James translates it, lacking in natural affection. And as I was thinking about our society, and then as we've been raising money for confidential care ministry, I thought, could there be a more tragic example of a person lacking in natural affection than a mother who would abort her own child? Why would someone do that? Because they love themselves more than the child they're carrying, because they're prioritizing their own interest above the interest of the life that God has given them. It's the tragic depths that self-love can lead one to. Another of society's tragedy that marks our difficult times is divorce. And this passage predicts that too, because in verse 3, Paul's saying... In the last days, difficult people will become unappeasable. That's the, the word the English standard uses. Some versions say unforgiving. That refer, word refers to a person who views their situation as intractable, as there's no solution, there's no reconciliation possible. It's a negative of a different word, like, like we put un in front of a word to make it negative. It's taking the word treaty and making it negative. It's a person who can't make peace with a, a situation. The unforgiving person refuses to work to settle a grievance or a disagreement. That's how marriages end. I have a very close friend who is suffering from this right now. His wife has separated from him and has decided to divorce. And she claims to be a Christian. She's attending church and claiming to be a Christian. But she refuses to work on the relationship anymore. She won't go to counseling. She's done. In her words, the differences are irreconcilable. Paul would say unappeasable. A, sin, a spouse who acts in this way is demonstrating a greater love for themselves than a love for God who hates divorce. Part of loving what God loves is hating what God hates. And Christians who fall into sin like this, like divorce or like abortion or these other sins that Paul mentions, may try to justify their behavior, may even try to twist the word of God to defend what they're doing, but that's slander. And that's the next word Paul uses in the passage. These things are connected. He calls these people slanderous. The Greek word that he's using there is diabolos, which you probably recognize because it's often the word called, the devil is called diabolos. In the previous chapter, 
Paul uses that very word for the devil in 2 Timothy 2, 26, when he's talking about people who are captured by diabolos, captured by the devil. Here he's talking about people who are acting like the devil, and they're becoming a devil to those around them. And the result is a loss of self-control, which is the next word uh, mentioned. Again, these things are connected. God has designed us so that he is to control our lives. His, his spirit is to draw, drive our engine. So when we wander from God, then our lives are going to lose control. We're kicking the engineer out of the train, and it's not going to run the same after that. And when our lives drift out of control in an effort to gain control, we'll become controlling. Or as Paul describes it, we'll become brutal. We'll become people who are not loving good, who are treacherous, who are reckless, who are swollen with conceit. That's a life that is a runaway train, and destruction's going to follow everywhere it goes. That's the life of someone who is rejecting the Lord. One application of these verses is for us to take seriously the dangers of sin and the requirement to repent of it. It's a serious passage. It's not, couldn't, I tried to work some jokes in, but it's just a really hard passage to do that with. It's just, it's just tough. But it's here to teach us to take sin seriously. As Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Not not have a bad life, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. We're not commanded to manage sin. We're commanded to mortify it. We're not told in Scripture to put our sin on hold. We're told to put sin to death. If left unchecked, sin will take you, as has been said many times, farther than you ever meant to go, keep you longer than you ever meant to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. You need to see your sin. We need to see our sin for the danger that it is and resolve to repent of it. Resolve by the power of the Spirit to put it to death. We can't do that, but God can do that for us if we come to him and we cry out to him and ask him, Lord, you see my sin, let me lay it before you. Help me put it to death before it grows unchecked in my life. A second application here is to recognize that Christianity is not simply behavior change. Many religious people attend church in many ways, act like a Christian, but have no real relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, even the terrible people Paul describes in this passage with these words we've been going over, even those people are said to have an appearance of godliness, but their lives deny the power of the gospel because they live as if there was no Holy Spirit. That's a a lack of faith. I mean, I hear this from people even, again, as my friend's wife who's separated from him, you know, 
nothing could change. My feelings aren't going to change. This situation's not going to change. That's a denial of the power of the Holy Spirit who God gave to believers to change their life. I like um, how the, the King James translates this. The ESV says the appearance of godliness, having the appearance of godliness. The, the King James and the New American Standard says having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And I like that because it makes me think about a construction form because I have an engineering degree, so it makes me think about a construction form. Well, what is a construction form? Well, it's, it's a wood box that you would build that's hollow on the inside, and you would fill it with concrete, and then when the concrete hardens, then you have a structure that you can build upon. Sarah's an engineer. Sarah, I'm going to ask you, this is the audience participation portion of the program, what happens if we build forms and we skip the, the step of putting the concrete in them and then we just build right on top of just the forms? What's going to happen? It's not going to go good. It's going to collapse. Why? Because the power or the strength of the foundation is missing. And there's a lot of people who have a form of godliness but the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit is missing. That's why your life is collapsing. Because the foundation isn't there. Just going through the motions of the Christian life does not a Christian make. Jesus said, you must be born again. Salvation requires a heart transplant that only God can provide cannot earn it. You cannot fix it by trying harder to do better. You need to confess to the Lord and you need to ask him, beg him, make your heart love him above all else. Don't let yourself be in church and unsaved. Don't be satisfied with merely an outward appearance of godliness and miss the power of the spirit. And believer, Wrestle with the same thing. I wrestled with this a lot as I was studying this passage. It, it really ate me up, just wrestling with God about, man, God, I try A, B, C, and D to be a better husband, but the problem is my heart. Teach me to love you more than myself. Teach me to love my wife more than myself. Without the heart change, man, any program of activity you have to make your life better, it's not going to last very long. It's got to come from the heart. God has to give you that. So we see the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And then in verse uh, 6 and 7, Paul begins to look in more detail about some of the specific people attacking the church of Ephesus and their victims. And he's showing us here the heart of the problem threatens the church. He says in verse 6, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Half the commentaries I read spent half their time on this verse. Uh, This phrase, weak women, has generated quite a lot of commentary. Um, That's what the ESV says, the New American Standard says weak women. That's not the best translation for a lot of reasons. 
But one is because it wouldn't specify, well, how or why are they weak? Um, the word literally means little women, which is the way the, uh, I think the King James may translate it. Um, it means a woman of low or diminished worth or low opinion. If that sounds like an insult, it's because it is. A lot of translators and commentators get real embarrassed by that, uh, as if it means that Paul, you know, does, doesn't like women or that this verse is offensive to women. It's not. It's offensive to these particular women. Paul's an equal opportunity offender. He calls it like he sees it. In Titus, he called the false teachers who were male, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's not because Paul has a problem with men. It's because Paul had a problem with those men. Specifically, it's because Paul has a problem with foolish people who profess to have knowledge but don't. And that's what these certain women in Ephesus had become. So he uses this word, little women, almost like derogatory, silly women, because of these particular women who are trying to make themselves something that they're not. And he's being dismissive of them on purpose. That's, that's why he says they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That, that word knowledge of the truth is used elsewhere in Timothy to refer to salvation. So in other words, they're studying. Man, they have these, these men are coming in and teaching them and they're eating it up. They're studying, they're studying, they're studying, they're studying, they're studying, but they're never getting saved. They're never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Why? Why? What caused them to be led astray? He tells us in this passage, they were burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So just like the false teachers that were previously described, these are people, these women are people whose passions or their loves betrayed them. They're passionate, but it doesn't lead to a good end. Now, unlike the false teachers, these women are said to be burdened with their sins. That sounds like a good thing, and it is a good thing, but that leads one to a desire for religious teaching. But whether or not that has a good or bad outcome depends on whether or not the religious teaching is good or bad. It's like a fish who's hungry, looking for something to eat. The outcome of that's going to depend on whether or not it's eating what's on a hook or not. It's going to depend on where that fish goes. These people were drew to religious teaching of any kind, and they got bad teaching, which led them astray. Uh, just this week, I had a conversation with somebody. It's so amazing how God just, the relevance of his word and how things come up. Um, I've been training pastors in Nepal online, getting involved training some pastors online in Nepal, and by God's grace, I, I hope or plan to go there this fall to do some pastor training. And I was talking to a co-worker who is a female who spent a lot of time in Nepal, and she said, yeah, just last night, I was discipling a female uh, in De De Nepal online over the, over the internet, and she was telling me that false teaching is spreading in her church. And she was really distraught about it, and uh, the, this particular Nepalese woman did not fall for the false teaching. She knew it was false because she had been well discipled, and she said, you know, this is not right. I know it doesn't line up with the gospel. But unfortunately, her pastor's wife was attracted to the false teaching, 
and began to embrace it and then shared it with her husband, who then shared it with the church. And so this false teaching was coming into the church. Uh, and it was just interesting because it's like, well, this is exactly what Paul's talking about in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. This is happening right now in this church in Nepal. And the lady that I was talking to, uh, you know, she said, this happens all the time over there. And that didn't surprise me a ton. But what she said next did surprise me. She said, this happens all the time over there. Yeah, it's because they're so spiritually hungry. I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, oh, they're just so hungry for the word that if anybody comes along and will pour into them, they're just going to soak it up and eat it up. And, and they just don't have the education and understanding to know the truth from the bad all the time. And, and that's very similar to what Paul's dealing with here. You know, a group of people who are not as educated as other people, women of that day were not, you know, given the same access to education. And someone comes along and, you know, they're burdened with their sins. They feel conviction and someone's teaching them and they soak it up. But it's a false gospel. It's not the truth. It's the things we've been talking about for the past few months as we went through First and Second Timothy. Just, you know, asceticism, just endless genealogies, just, you know, puffed up knowledge, just, just not the root core of the gospel of, the, of salvation through grace uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. And so they're led astray. So that is what Paul says about the women, but enough about that because they're not the heart of the problem. The little women aren't the problem. It's the big shot men who are doing the teaching that are the problem. And Paul turns his attention back to them in verses 8 and 9, where I want you to see the heart of the problem, he says, will be revealed. In verse 8 and 9, Paul says that um, these teachers, just as Jonas and Jambres oppose Moses, these men also oppose the truth. Now this pair of characters, Jonas and Jambres, is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. You look it up in your concordance, you won't find it, but it is mentioned a lot in Jewish tradition and writings. Um, according to Jewish tradition, uh, which Paul's audience would have known, Jonas and Jambres were court magicians in the court of Pharaoh when Moses was confronting Pharaoh and, and demanding that he let God's people go right before the Exodus. And um, these two characters, Jonas and Jambres, they kind of over time grew to kind of have uh, like legendary significance, almost like archetypes, like like those two people individually were like, you know, blamed for so much. And, you know, you remember what Moses did to Jonathan Jambas? Like they kind of took on legendary status. Um, and again, you won't find them in the book of Exodus by name, but the book of Exodus does mention that there were magicians, and that's the word the Bible uses, in the court of Pharaoh who were initially doing a lot of the same signs that Moses and Aaron were doing. So when Aaron threw his staff down and it became a serpent, the court magici magicians uh, threw down their staff and it became a serpent. But then Aaron's serpent staff swallowed up their serpent staff. And when Moses um, you know, lifted the staff and the water of the Nile turned to blood, the magicians also could turn water to blood. They, couldn't, they could not do the more important step of turning blood back into clean water. 
they can only make things worse, much like most of the work Satan does. They can only make things worse, or all the work Satan does. They can, it only makes things worse. Um, the magicians could make frogs come up on the land of Egypt, like Moses did. Again, just making things worse. And then it reached a point they couldn't duplicate what he did, plague four, plague five. They couldn't duplicate uh, those plagues. Um, but then in the sixth plague struck, and boils broke out on man and beast. And it says in the book of Exodus, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And that's written for a lesson to us. There's going to be people who will talk the talk of Christianity. There will be people who may even walk the walk for a while of Christianity. But even though they may give a strong impression of being a believer, um, those who aren't changed at the heart are just fooling themselves. And there's going to come a time and day that they're not going to be able to stand before the Lord. And their folly, as Paul says here, is going to be revealed to everyone. They're going to remain corrupted in their mind. And as Paul says, disqualified regarding the faith. That's the biggest problem with these people in this passage that Paul's railing against. It's why he tells Timothy to avoid them. It's not because he wants us to avoid lost people. It's because when there are people who are lost and full of sin who are then within the church professing to be a believer and wanting to be a teacher, those are the people that Paul's saying, hey, don't have anything to do with them at all. Just avoid them because they're just trouble with a capital T. And one day they're going to be revealed because the Lord sees the heart. The Lord sees the heart. False teachers like this are not going to get far. Their folly is going to become plain to everyone. They're going to be publicly humbled, just like Paul says. Um, and that the Lord sees the heart is actually a quote from 2 Timothy, which we just, you know, just covered recently. Um, the Lord sees the heart, and it says to let everyone who names the name of iniquity, or names the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, because the Lord sees what's going on in your heart. So I'm preaching here now to the church attender who's listening, but you really just, you don't have a real relationship to Jesus Christ. Like, We've all been there. I was one of those for years, raised in church, baptized as a child, but was a college student, didn't know the Lord at all. I was at a Catholic university. We had to take a religion class. We had to read the Gospels, and I'm reading the Gospels at a Catholic university, and I'm going, man, my life looks nothing like this. And, and I'm reading a verse where, you know, Jesus says, hey, there's going to be a day that you're going to say, you know, to me, like, hey, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name? And I'm going to say, depart from me because I, I never knew you. And I realized I didn't know Jesus. And, and there may be some people in this room today that, you know, you've, you've been to church for a long, long time, but you don't know Jesus. If you're trying to fake it until you make it as a Christian, this is a word of warning to you. The Lord knows we can't fake him. He knows we may fool people around us for a while, but the Lord knows who belongs to him. Why not let today 
be the day to, to give up the act? Why not, why not let today be the day you, you confess your need for a Savior? You repent and depart from sin. You say, hey, I, I grew up here, but I never knew Jesus. Man, I want to know Jesus today. That would be celebrated. No one would ever look down on anyone who repents. It's never too late to repent and turn to Jesus. That would be celebrated. Depart from sin. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Believe in the promise of Christ that he saves those who trust not in their own works but in him. By the grace of God, he saves those who trust in him. And then to the Christian, I say, understand, as Paul says, there, that there will come times of difficulty because people will be lovers of themselves instead of lovers of the God who made them. Times are going to get hard. But there is hope offered not for those who pursue the easy way out, but for those who turn from self-centeredness and turn to Jesus Christ as their only Lord and hope. Christ, our hope in life and death. There's hope for salvation for the lost person. There's hope for sanctification for the believer. Sanctification, that means being made new, a new way of living. God gives us that hope in this world. God also gives us a mission in this world to share the good news of salvation that we've received with the lost and dying world around us. Yeah, it's a, it's a dark world. Some days it seems like it's becoming rotten and it's very dark. That's why God said we're salt and light, to preserve it, to shine the light of the gospel into the world. If you ever try to take a flashlight out at dusk, you know, it doesn't work so great. But stay out there, let it get a little darker. And that light is going to really shine. So, yeah, things may get dark. That's just a greater opportunity for us to shine the light of the gospel to people who need it. We're going to close by uh, singing a song of hope together. Worship team can come up and, and take the stage. Uh, this is a song that uh, many of you should know. I don't know that we've sung it in a while, but it's pretty familiar, and it, it fits really well with our passage this morning. It begins, do you feel the world is broken? Yeah, we do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from coming through? We do. As difficult times come upon us, remember that God is in control God knows the hearts of those causing the difficulty. He knows the sheep from the goats. He knows our hearts too. We're not worthy of his salvation, but Jesus is worthy. And Jesus, our Messiah, does he hold forever those he loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell with us again? He does. Let's sing together to close our time this morning.
Whoa! 